prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of this book, Mere Christianity. We thank you for how amazingly timely and relevant this book is. We thank you for how it upholds the truth of Holy Scripture as the rule and guide for our life. Lord, we pray that as we delve into tonight's chapter, that you would use this material to help form our hearts, to help form our minds, and to form us more and more after the image of Jesus Christ, your Son. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. So as usual, I would love to start with uh, saying our verse together. So I would encourage you to join with me in saying this. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And tonight's lesson, we're going to think a little bit about that corruption that is in the world part. And I think Lewis is going to have some things that will be very relevant um, for our culture. So I want to, as always, just say a word of welcome to people that are new. Every week we have some new people either on Zoom or joining through the podcast or through uh, the video. So we are delighted to have you. If you haven't been here before, just a quick word about how to approach this. You can be on the beach in this class, sipping a drink in the sand and the sun, not really paying attention, but just sort of along for the ride. If that's all you want to do, I'm happy to have you. If you want us to just be background noise for your dinner, it's all good. Or you can be snorkeling, which means you can go deep on the things that are interesting to you and just coast along on the things that are not. Or you can scuba dive, which means that you might have an inner nerd like I do um, that likes to go down the rabbit hole and um, really delve deep into some things. And there will be resources along the way to help you do that. I also want to encourage you, if you're not on the email list, to uh, Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and get a little email off to me and I will add you to the list uh, because the email that comes each week has a summary plus all of the different resources that if you want to go deeper will enable you to do that. Also, just a couple of words if you're new about reading this book. Um, I would very definitely encourage you to get your own copy and to have a highlighter and a pen uh, when we're doing the class. Uh, this book, since it was originally broadcast talks, uh, really works well to read aloud uh, and only a little bit at a time. I would only do one chapter at a time. It is very rich and dense and it needs to be chewed on like a good steak. So the more that you spend a little time chewing between chapters, the book will be more meaningful to you. Reading it aloud is very helpful. And that again, that C.S. Lewis Doodle is a great website that can help you to, if you don't understand something, to maybe get a different perspective on it. So um, for tonight, we have some slightly unusual music. Uh, if you think you know what this is, y'all always surprise me. I think I'll stump you and people get it. Um, if you think you know what this is, uh, let me know. Go ahead and turn your volume up a little bit um, so you can hear it. have any guesses feel free to uh, send a chat along to me and we'll see if you're right or not uh, if you don't have any guesses that's fine too
Okay, so didn't get any takers on that one. So I guess I stumped you. So that that is, I guess, a victory for me, perhaps. Uh, what we were listening to is a somewhat obscure piece, but it is beautiful. So I commend the link to you. Uh, it is a song cycle uh, where the music was composed by the British composer, Benjamin Britten, um, who some of y'all will know because most famous work probably is a ceremony of carols that you hear sometimes at Christmas. Um, but he, like me, was a big fan of the poet John Donne, who we've talked about in this class, uh, who was the Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral. And John Donne, wrote some things called the Holy Sonnets, which if you don't know them are just absolutely beautiful. And Benjamin Britten set them to music. And the one we just listened to was an excerpt from the Holy Sonnet number six, which is entitled Since She Whom I Loved. And it's about his wife who had just died. Um, so it was appropriate for tonight. So um, I commend that to you. Uh, we are gonna go very quickly through our review tonight. So hold on to your seats. Uh, just a review of the context. We're in England in World War II. It's 1942, the Baedeker bombings going on of all the great cultural sites of England. Uh, Lewis is coming in to London, which is in flames still um, to do these broadcasts. So remember that first book, he starts off right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe starting with what is observable from nature about who are we and how did we and the cosmos come to be. He talks about the law of human nature, the law of right and wrong, um, our conscience, if you will, that we don't always obey, we don't always do what's right, but we have an idea of what it should be. And then of course, the words from the executive at the BBC about how important it is in times of difficulty and uncertainty and questioning for the church to become a translator of the gospel, to put the word of God out there into the culture in a way that people can understand. And if there was ever a message for the church in our time, it is that. So after that, uh, the next thing that he talked about in book two was what Christians believe. And the BBC asked him to try to sum up all of Christianity in a series of five talks. And he did that. Uh, and he uses this analogy of the invasion. He says the earth is enemy occupied territory and Christianity is the saga, the story of how the rightful king is landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a secret campaign of espionage. And Lewis says that is why all the forces of hell are arrayed against you when you decide you want to try to go to church to worship God. Because when you go to church, you're listening in on the wireless, you're hearing God's word, you're hearing instruction about how to deal with this enemy that we are to defeat. Lewis talks in this section about free will and how free will makes evil possible, but it is also the only thing that makes love or goodness or joy possible and worth having. He talks about how God is the fuel on which we're designed to run and that we may look for happiness and contentment outside of God, but God can't give it to us because it's not there. He is the fuel we're designed to burn. And then he talks about Jesus and the shocking things he said, claiming to be God, claiming to be the one who made the universe, who had entered into it and was now forgiving people's sins. And then that great trilemma where Lewis says, a man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. And then Lewis talks about why did Jesus come uh, obviously, Jesus is teaching as a central part of his mission, but the atonement is the most important part. And I just want to say an extra word about that tonight as we get ready for Holy Week. Uh, one of the striking things when you look at the Gospels is that between a quarter and a half of the four Gospels, when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each one of those 
somewhere between a quarter and a half of each gospel is devoted to the last week of Jesus's life. And it is designed to get our attention. And Holy Week is so important to walk through before we get to Easter, because without walking the path of Holy Week, the joy of Easter is hollow. Until you understand Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, um, Easter cannot be fully understood. So I commend that to you. The other thing that Lewis talks about is this new Christ life that is planted in us when we come to believe in Jesus Christ. We talked about some implications of this book, this whole paradox of the Christian walk. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So that brings us to book three, which is the one that we are in right now. And one of the great things about book three is that book three tells us a lot about the spiritual underpinnings of morality. And as we look at this whole topic of Christian behavior, we live in a culture that has become unmoored from the classical understanding of morality. And so it's very important for us who are Christians today, who wanna to be translators of the Christian faith to be able to come back to that and to understand a little bit more about what it means to have this underpinning for an understanding of morality. So Lewis starts off talking about the three parts of morality. And this is our first clue that something has gone awry uh, because basically what happens is that Lewis tells us that morality is more than just trying to make sure that we don't cause problems for other people. And our culture has forgotten about that. We focus on this whole idea that it's just about the way we deal with others. And Lewis starts off with that great saying that there's a story about a schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like and said that as far as he could make out, God was the sort of person who's always snooping around to see if anyone is enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. And that is certainly the prevailing view in our culture. We're gonna talk more of that, that tonight. And Lewis uses this great analogy about ships. Uh, and that is the way that he illustrates these three parts of morality. That sort of the fair play and harmony among individuals is the ships sailing in formation, making sure they don't get in each other's way, that one doesn't get too far ahead or too far behind, and they're keeping an eye on each other to make sure they're in right relationship. But Lewis says that is not all that the scriptures tell us about morality. That another really important part is the tidying up or harmonizing of things inside each individual. And he says with a ship, if you've got a ship that the rudder is totally out of control or the ship has run out of fuel, obviously that ship is gonna cause problems for all the other ones, even though it isn't intending to. And then the third thing he talks about is the general purpose of human life as a whole, what man was made for. And he says, this is the destination of the ships, the destination of the flotilla, if you will, that if they're supposed to be going to New York and arrive in Calcutta, something has gone very, very wrong. So he says that these three things are really important. And in our culture today, the problem that we have is you hear over and over again that people say this can't be wrong because it doesn't harm anyone else. But as Lewis says, that ignores these last two parts of morality. And he also says that worldview, different beliefs about the universe are really, really important here. That if you uh, look at religion, it makes certain fact statements that have to be either true or false. And if they are true, it means one thing. If they are false, it means something else. And the example he uses again with the ship is he said, doesn't it make a great difference what you do with your ship if the ship is your own property or it belongs to someone else? And then he contrasts individuals and civilizations. 
He says, if individuals only live 70 years, there's no eternal life, there's no heaven, then a state or a nation or a civilization which might last a thousand years is more important than the individual. But if Christianity is true, the individual is not only more important, but incomparably more important, for he is everlasting, and the life of a state or of civilization compared with his is only a moment. So when we're thinking about morality, we have to think about all three of these levels. So one of the things that's important for us to understand in terms of implications is that we as Christians need to quit apologizing for the word of God and to realize that God's law is full of truth and beauty and that it is the recipe for human flourishing. And part of that understanding is not only do we need to re-embrace that, but we need to build bridges to others to take up that ministry of reconciliation that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. And then to do what Jesus says, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And I was just reading in some of Lewis's letters this week about how throughout World War II, he was praying daily for Hitler and Stalin. Well, that's pretty hardcore. Um, and I would commend to us that if there are people that we think are on the wrong side, that we should be praying for those people instead of just gossiping about them. So the second thing Lewis talks about are the virtues. And he talks about the cardinal hinge virtues that are the ones through which good and civilized life come, prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude. And we talked about how one of the really sad things is how old fashioned those words sound to us. Whereas in fact, they are again, part of the recipe for human flourishing. We talked also about this whole idea of perseverance is so important that it's not just practicing the virtue from time to time that God is after. What he wants is to shape our character, to transform us, to be like Jesus Christ. And one of the things Lewis said is the main thing we learn from a serious attempt to practice the Christian virtues is that we fail. If there's any idea that God had set us a sort of exam and we might get good marks by deserving them, that has to be wiped out. And the theologian Dallas Willard has observed profoundly that grace is not opposed to effort. It's not just, oh, I'm saved. I don't have to do anything anymore. Grace means that our hearts are turned toward love God, to love God. And we're so overwhelmed by that love that we want to try to please him by obeying his law, not to earn anything, but just because we want to be pleasing to our father. So we also talked about social morality in chapter three, um, which is so very relevant today. And mostly what Lewis says here is that if we had a truly Christian society, we might not like it very much. And that the problem for many of us is that we think that the savior of the world, the solution to all of our problems depends on who's on Air Force One. Now it may be important who's on Air Force One, but that pales in comparison to our trusting in Jesus Christ. And part of what Lewis says here is that so often we are looking um, to the church and to scripture and to our faith to justify what we already believe rather than asking God to transform us. He also talks about fear and that so often our fear is really a fear of insecurity that is a temptation from Satan because we want to trust in our own riches or in our country or in our efforts or in our relationships rather than trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Remember that old hymn on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. So Lewis says at the conclusion of that chapter, a Christian society is not going to arrive until most of us really want it. And we're not gonna want it until we become fully Christian. I may repeat, do as you would be done by till I'm black in the face, but I can't carry it out till I love my neighbor as myself. I cannot learn to love my neighbor as myself until I learn to love God. And I cannot learn to love God except by learning to obey him. And so 
we are driven onto something more inward, driven on from social matters to religious matters, for the longest way round is the shortest way home. And what Lewis is saying here is that the key thing to transform the world is for us to be transformed by the Holy Spirit and to be so full of the Holy Spirit and of joy and of peace that people who live in this anxious and desperate and depressed culture are so shocked by our joy and peace that overflows from us from the Holy Spirit that they are curious about what the difference is. And that is the most effective way of transformation. Last week's chapter on morality and psychoanalysis does a great job of uh, putting Sigmund Freud in his place. Freud exercises, in my opinion, far too much uh, influence in the worlds of academia and intellectual places. And the interesting thing about that is that a lot of Freud's research has been disproved. People don't talk about that anymore, uh, but they, they just assume that Freud is right. And it is often taught in such a way that uh, people do not realize that Freud's worldview is in direct contradiction to Christianity. And I cannot commend highly enough this question of God program um, that I sent some links to. If you're really into this, I would really encourage you to get the DVD. It's not very expensive and it's definitely worth having if you still are old fashioned enough to have a DVD player. Uh, if not, you can get the book, The Question of God. It's so good. Uh, and Lewis is very quick to say psychoanalysis is a useful tool for Christians. And he says the role of it is that when people make moral choices, two things are involved. One is the act of choosing, and the other is the various feelings, impulses, and whatnot that his psychological outfit presents him with, which are the raw material of his choice. And that psychoanalysis seeks to remove abnormal feelings, that is to give the man better raw material for his acts of choice. Whereas morality is concerned about the acts of choice themselves. Freud's view has infiltrated so many things. Um, it's all over the place and you hear it spouted by media pundits, you hear it spouted sometimes even by people in the church, but it's the idea that there isn't really such thing as right and wrong it's just what's authentic for you. And that the more that you do what is authentic for you, it makes a difference and makes you a more um, wonderful person somehow. So the idea about this with Freud is that he is um, somehow enabling you to be a better person by just sort of doing whatever you think feels right to you. So this whole program is called The Question of God. Um, it is on PBS, um, or I should say was on PBS. The study guide and resources are still there, although the videos are not. But I would encourage you to investigate. That'll be well worth your time. Lewis goes on to say, part of the reason that Jesus tells us not to judge others in very clear and certain terms is that we judge each other by external actions. And God instead judges by moral choices. Remember, as we see way back in Samuel's time, that God looks on the heart. We can't do that. We see only the results which a man's choices make out of his raw material. But God does not judge him on the raw material at all, but on what he has done with it. So that is really important. And Lewis goes on to say that we must have an eternal perspective when we think about these things. That what happens to each of us is that each choice that we make, each action that we choose, leaves a mark on our soul. That part of us that no one sees in this life, but which each of us will have to endure or enjoy forever. This is the whole idea that's behind that novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. So again, Lewis says, consciousness of sin is a good temperature, um, a good thermometer for us to look at. When a man is getting better, uh, that means in terms of his relationship with God, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. 
when a man's getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. A moderately bad man knows that he's not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks that he is all right. And I love this quotation from James Montgomery Boyce. The mature Christian knows he's always living in Romans 7, apart from the Holy Spirit. Moreover, he knows that dependence on the Holy Spirit is not something that he has attained once for all, but that it is the result of a daily struggle and a constantly renewed commitment. What is sanctification? Is it an awareness of how good we're becoming? Or is it a growing sense of how sinful we really are? So we will constantly turn to and depend on Jesus Christ. If we are mature in Christ, we know it is the latter. So implications of this, know what's wrong with the Freudian worldview so you can show how the Christian worldview is a better alternative. Remember the freedom of self-forgetfulness from that Keller book we talked about and shun judgment and pride, remembering we all start from different places. And then consider the power of choice and its profound implications for our eternal life. That beautiful section from the end of Lewis's sermon, The Weight of Glory, uh, which is in the email. So that brings us to chapter five, sexual morality. Now this chapter caused quite a stir when Lewis first brought it out on the BBC. It was um, not something that was talked about very much in the 1940s in England. And the result of this was that Lewis's audience got even bigger than it was before. So it proved to be something that uh, enhanced the broadcast. So Lewis starts off this chapter talking about the old virtue of chastity versus modesty. And he says, we must now consider Christian morality as regards sex, what Christians call the virtue of chastity. The Christian rule of chastity must not be confused with the social rule of modesty or propriety or decency. The social rule of propriety lays down how much of the human body should be displayed and what subjects can be referred to and in what words according to the customs of a given social circle. Thus, while the rule of chastity is the same for all Christians at all times, the rule of propriety changes. A girl in the Pacific Islands wearing hardly any clothes and a Victorian lady completely covered in clothes might both be equally modest, proper, or decent according to the standards of their own societies. And both, for all we could tell by their dress, might be equally chaste or unchaste. Some of the language which chaste women used in Shakespeare's time would have been used in the 19th century only by a woman completely abandoned. When people break the rule of propriety current in their own time and place, if they do it in order to excite lust in themselves or others, they're offending against chastity. But if they break it through ignorance or carelessness, they're guilty only of bad manners. When they break it defiantly, they're not necessarily being unchaste, but they are being uncharitable, for it's uncharitable to take pleasure in making other people uncomfortable. I don't think a strict or fussy standard of propriety is any proof of chastity or any help to it. And I therefore regard the great relaxation and simplifying of the rule, which taken, has taken place in my own lifetime, as a good thing. At its present stage, however, it has this inconvenience, that people of different ages and different types don't all acknowledge the same standard, and we hardly know where we are. While this confusion lasts, I think old-fashioned people should be very careful not to assume that young people are corrupt whenever they are, by the old standard, improper, and in return, that young people should not call their elders prudes or puritans because they don't easily adopt the new standard. A real desire to believe all the good you can of others and to make others as comfortable as you can will solve most of the problems. I could give a whole sermon just on that part, but I'm not going to because we haven't even gotten to the real point yet. But I do wanna point out this painting behind me. This is Jesus being baptized by St. John. And you will notice that if there are people that were dressed like that, that walk down the street of Charleston right now, not only would they be arrested for not having on a mask, but they would be arrested for indecent exposure. And the artist has made an assumption that that type of uh, undress was okay in Jesus's time. 
um, an assumption which I think is wrong, uh, but he thought that it was okay. So it's just an example of different ideas from different times about what was appropriate. So Lewis goes right from chastity versus modesty to defining biblical chastity. He says, chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. There is no getting away from it. The old Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Now, in Lewis's time, it was not necessary to say a marriage between a man and a woman, but that is what he means. Either marriage between a man and a woman with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Now, Lewis is very clear here, and this is right from scripture. This is the witness of the scriptures about sexuality. And if the church stuck with that, uh, we would be all so much better off and it would stop so much of the confusion that's out there. And uh, those of you who have been following the news remember that there was a great hue and cry when Pope Francis came out with a statement uh, about two weeks ago, um, basically saying the same thing as Lewis is saying here about the witness of the scriptures. And people were shocked and offended. But this has been what the church has taught for 2000 years. I don't know why anybody is shocked. But Lewis does say, now this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct as it is now has gone wrong, one or the other. And of course, being a Christian, I think it's the instinct which has gone wrong. He then talks about the unique challenges of the sexual instinct. He says the biological purpose of sex is children, just as the biological purpose of eating is to repair the body. Now, if we eat whenever we feel inclined and whatever we want, it's quite true most of us will eat too much, but not terrifically too much, unless you're at Krispy Kreme. One man may eat enough for two, but he does not eat enough for 10. The appetite goes a little beyond its biological purpose, but not enormously. But if a healthy young man indulged his sexual appetite with a willing partner whenever he felt inclined, and if each act produced a baby, then in 10 years, he might easily populate a small village. This appetite is in ludicrous and preposterous excess of its function. Or take it another way. You can get a large audience together for a striptease act, that is to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? And would not anyone who had grown up in a different world think there was something equally queer about the state of the sex instinct among us? One critic said that if he found a country in which such striptease acts with food were popular, he would conclude that the people of that country were starving. He meant, of course, to imply that such things as the striptease act result not from sexual corruption, but from sexual starvation. I agree with him that if in some strange land we found that similar acts with mutton chops were popular, one of the possible explanations which would occur to me would be famine. But the next step would be to test our hypothesis by finding out whether in fact much or little food was being consumed in that country. If the evidence showed a good deal was being eaten, then of course we should have to abandon the hypothesis of starvation and try to think of another one. In the same way, before accepting sexual starvation as the cause of the striptease, we should have to look for evidence that there is in fact more sexual abstinence in our age than in those ages when things like the striptease were unknown. But surely there is no such evidence. Contraceptives have made sexual indulgence far less costly within marriage and far safer outside it than ever before. And public opinion is less hostile to elicit unions and even to perversion than it has been since pagan times. Nor is the hypothesis of starvation the only one we can imagine. Everyone knows that the sexual appetite, like our other appetites, grows by indulgence. Starving men may think much about food, but so do gluttons, the gorged as well as the famished, like titillations. Here is a third point. 
you'll find very few people who want to eat things that are really not food or to do other things with food instead of eating it. In other words, perversions of the food appetite are rare, but perversions of the sex instinct are numerous, hard to cure, and frightful. I'm sorry to have to go into all these details, but I must. He then goes on to talk about what's wrong with the cultural view of sexuality. The reason why I must is that you and I, for the last 20 years, uh, and for us, we could probably say for the last century just about, we have been fed all day long on good solid lies about sex. We've been told till one is sick of hearing it, that sexual desires in the same state as any of our other natural desires. And that if only we abandon the silly old Victorian idea of hushing it up, everything in the garden will be lovely. It is not true. The moment you look at the facts and away from the propaganda, you see that it is not. They tell you sex has become a mess because it was hushed up. But for the last 20 years or 100, it has not been hushed up. It has been chattered about all day long, yet it is still in a mess. If hushing up had been the cause of the trouble, ventilation would have set it right, but it has not. I think it is the other way around. I think the human race originally hushed it up because it had become such a mess. Modern people are always saying sex is nothing to be ashamed of. They may mean two things. They may mean there's nothing to be ashamed of in the fact that the human race reproduces itself in a certain way, nor in the fact that it gives pleasure. If they mean that, they are right. Christianity says the same. It's not the thing nor the pleasure that's the trouble. The old Christian teachers said that if, a, if man had never fallen, sexual pleasure, instead of being less than it is now, would actually have been greater. I know some muddle-headed Christians have talked as if Christianity thought that sex or the body or pleasure were bad in themselves, but they were wrong. Christianity is almost the only one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body, which believes that matter is good, that God himself once took on a human body, that some kind of body is going to be given to us even in heaven, and it's going to be an essential part of our happiness, our beauty, and our energy. Christianity has glorified marriage more than any other religion, and nearly all the greatest love poetry in the world has been produced by Christians. If anyone says that sex in itself is bad, Christianity contradicts him at once. However, when people say sex is nothing to be ashamed of, they may also mean the state in which the sexual instinct has now got is nothing to be ashamed of. If they mean that, I think they are wrong. I think it is everything to be ashamed of. There's nothing to be ashamed of in enjoying your food. There would be everything to be ashamed of if half the world made food the main interest of their lives and spent their time looking at pictures of food and dribbling and smacking their lips. I do not say you and I are individually responsible for the present situation. Our ancestors have handed over to us organisms which are warped in this respect, and we grow up surrounded by propaganda in favor of unchastity. There are people who want to keep our sex instinct inflamed in order to make money out of us, because of course a man with an obsession is a man who has very little sales resistance. God knows our situation. He will not judge us as if we had no difficulties to overcome. What matters is the sincerity and perseverance of our will to overcome them. Before we can be cured, we must want to be cured. Those who really wish for help will get it. But for many modern people, even the wish is difficult. It is easy to think that we want something when we do not really want it. A famous Christian, St. Augustine, long ago, told us that when he was a young man, he prayed constantly for chastity. But years later, he realized that while his lips had been saying, oh, Lord, make me chaste, his heart had been secretly adding, but please don't do it just yet. So uh, there is a lot of truth to that. And I also want to just observe that um, it's a little frightening to look at what's happening with food in our culture as well. Um, that's a whole nother talk. But Lewis would have been shocked by that. He also would have been um, not surprised, I think, at how our culture has really embraced more and more and more 
the idea that humans are animals. This is part of the converse of what goes on with PETA and animal rights groups. And the idea is that every animal is the same. We are no really different from a cow or a pig or a deer. And they are uninhibited. They just do what they want to in terms of sex. And there are many, many people, including Freud, who would have said that is absolutely right. And the more that we follow our instincts, the more human we are. But Lewis, taking his worldview from scripture, says, no, 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 no. We are created in the image of God. We are the summit of creation. We have been given dominion over the animals. And we, of course, are to be good stewards of them. But we are not like animals. And we are able to create. We are the only, not procreate, but create. We're the only part of creation that can make art and music and literature and all of those kinds of things. So uh, back to Lewis. He says there are three special reasons chastity is difficult. He says that there are uh, things going on in our culture that make it very difficult to desire, let alone achieve chastity. The first thing is the wrong thinking that surrounds us. He says our warped natures, the devils who tempt us, and all the contemporary propaganda for lust combine to make us feel that the desires we are resisting are so natural, so healthy, and so reasonable that it is almost perverse and abnormal to resist them. Poster after poster, film after film, novel after novel, associate the idea of sexual indulgence with the ideas of health, normality, youth, frankness, and good humor. Now, this association is a lie. Like all powerful lies, it is based on a truth, the truth acknowledged above that sex in itself, apart from the excesses and obsessions that have grown round it, is normal and healthy and all the rest of it. The lie consists in the suggestion that any sexual act to which you are tempted at the moment is also healthy and normal. Now, this on any conceivable view, and quite apart from Christianity, must be nonsense. Surrender to all our desires obviously leads to impotence, disease, jealousies, lies, concealment, and everything that is the reverse of health, good humor, and frankness. So one of the things that we see is that if we want to have any happiness in this world, quite a lot of restraint is going to be necessary. So the claim that any desire when it's strong to be healthy and reasonable counts for nothing. Every sane and civilized man must have some set of principles by which he chooses to reject some of his desires and to permit others. One man does this on Christian principles, another on hygienic principles, another on sociological principles. The real conflict is not between Christianity and nature, but between Christian principle and other principles and the control of nature. For nature, in the sense of natural desire, will have to be controlled anyway, unless you are going to ruin your whole life. The Christian principles are admittedly stricter than the others, but then we think you will get help toward obeying them, which you will not get toward obeying the others. Now, I want to just pause here for a minute to talk about how our culture has taken this multiple steps further. One of the really distressing things in our culture that they're finally starting to be teaching in the church about to counter this is the idea that sex defines who you are, that your sexual desires define who you are. The idea that 100 years ago that people would introduce themselves and define themselves by what they like to do behind closed doors in the bedroom would have been profoundly shocking. And the reason for that is that sex was seen as one part of human existence, not even necessarily a very important part, something that we know when we go into heaven, um, the sexual act as we know it now will be gone. So sexuality is something that is only, um, in terms of its physical act, something for this life. But the culture tells us that this is the most important thing. It is the defining characteristic more so than anything else about you. And this comes right from Freud, who says that sex is, and sexual desires are the root of everything, 
um, every neurosis, every action, every choice that we made is all about sex. But the problem with that is that the vast majority of human history, particularly in cultures that flourished, have said, no, 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 no. This is an aspect of what it means to be human, but it is an aspect that must be put in its proper place for the flourishing of humanity. So we are in a culture that has just let go of that and is all about defining ourselves in terms of our sexual desires, something that is like out of Orwell. It is uh, some sort of dystopian thing and it's happened right in front of our eyes really just in the past five years. So the second point, a sense of futility. Many people are deterred from seriously attempting Christian chastity because they think before trying that it's impossible. But when a thing has to be attempted, one must never think about possibility or impossibility. Faced with an optional question in an examination paper, one considers whether one can do it or not. Faced with a compulsory question, one must do the best one can. You may get some marks for a very imperfect answer. You will certainly get none for leaving the question alone. Not only in examinations, but in war, in mountain climbing, and learning to skate or swim or ride a bicycle, even in fastening a stiff collar with cold fingers, people quite often do what seemed impossible before they did it. It is wonderful what you can do when you have to. We may indeed be sure that perfect chastity, like perfect charity, will not be attained by any merely human efforts. You must ask for God's help. Even when you have done so, it may seem to you for a long time that no help or less help than you need is being given. Never mind. After each failure, ask forgiveness, pick yourself up, and try again. Very often what God first helps us toward is not the virtue itself, but just this power of always trying again. For however important chastity or courage or truthfulness or any other virtue may be, this process trains us in habits of the soul, which are more important still. It cures our illusions about ourselves and teaches us to depend on God. We learn on the one hand that we cannot trust ourselves even in our best moments, and on the other, that we need not despair even in our worst, for our failures are forgiven. The only fatal thing to sit down, the only fatal thing is to sit down content with anything less than perfection. So this is something that is so important because again, you hear this over and over and over again in our culture. You hear that abstinence is impossible. Um, you hear that it causes all sorts of problems and that people would really be much better off to just give in to their desires. But the problem with that is that it's a lie and it's a lie that is particularly sold to teenagers with heartbreaking results. I remember vividly having a counseling meeting with a young woman who was around 22 um, who just graduated from college. Um, and this was some years ago and she made an appointment to come see me. And she said, you know, when I was in high school, everyone told me that the way to really have the best possible high school experience was to party all the time, to find guys that you thought were really hot and hook up with them. And she said, I had sex with a bunch of different guys that I thought were really cool. I drank like a fish. I tried pot and other drugs and I partied my way through high school. And yet I was never happy and I never really experienced joy. I kept thinking I needed to just try a little harder, party a little more, and then it would be all better. And she said, and then I got to college and I spent my freshman year doing the same thing and it just didn't get any better. In fact, it got worse and I felt guilty and I didn't know why and I was sad and depressed. And then my sophomore year, I was assigned to be roommates with these two Christian girls and they had never partied um, with getting drunk. They had never had sex. And they had all of these happy memories of high school. They had happy memories of freshman year. 
They had deep friendships with the other girls in their Bible study where they had each other's backs and where they weren't catty and that there was not brokenness everywhere. And these girls had so much joy. And I spent my junior and senior year with them and I eventually came to faith in Jesus Christ. But she said, the sad thing is I look back on my life and all I see that I have from that is a bunch of scars, a venereal disease, and a lot of guilt. Sorry to be graphic there, but that's the truth. It's the lie that is being sold to young people. And it is, it is just profoundly depressing. And this is why we need to re-embrace the idea that God's law is what sets us up for flourishing. I have never in all of my years of counseling with people met anyone who regretted waiting until they got married to express their sexuality. But I've heard a lot of regrets of other things. But the great thing, as Lewis said earlier, um, based on what the scriptures tell us, is that God is a God of infinite forgiveness and mercy. That God is a God who can make us a new creation where the old has passed away because the new has come. So um, moving on with Lewis, uh, and this goes right to what I was just talking about, of our culture talking about how repression of sexual desire is so bad. And Lewis says, people often misunderstand what psychology teaches about repressions. It teaches us that repressed sex is dangerous, but repressed here is a technical term. It does not mean suppressed in the sense of denied or resisted. A repressed desire or thought is one which has been thrust into the subconscious, usually at a very early age, and can now come before the mind only in a disguised or unrecognizable form. Repressed sexuality does not appear to the patient to be sexuality at all. When an adolescent or an adult is engaged in resisting a conscious desire, he is not dealing with a repression, nor is he in the least danger of creating a repression. On the contrary, those who are seriously attempting chastity are more conscious and soon know a great deal more about their own sexuality than anyone else. I might add that they are also following the scriptural mandate to flee temptation, to resist the devil and he will flee from you. All of those other scriptures we talked about in Screwtape class. But Lewis says, when you are actively attempting chastity, you learn more and more about the temptation. He says, they come to know their desires as Wellington knew Napoleon or as Sherlock Holmes knew Moriarty, as a rat catcher knows rats, or a plumber knows about leaky pipes. Virtue, even attempted virtue, brings light. Indulgence brings fog. Let me say that again. Virtue, even attempted virtue, brings light. Indulgence brings fog. Although I've had to speak at some length about sex, I want to make it as clear as I possibly can that the center of Christian morality is not here. Let's hear that loud and clear, especially those of us who grew up in the Bible Belt. I want to make it as clear as I possibly can that the center of Christian morality is not here. If anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual the pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting and gossip, the pleasures of power, of hatred. For there are two things inside me competing with the human self, which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who regularly goes to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it is better to be neither. That is one of the great last lines of any chapter I've ever read. But what Lewis is trying to say here is that we have in the church um, glorified in a way 
sexual sin. And part of the reason for that is we bought into the culture's teaching that sex is the most important thing. And this has had all sorts of unintended, terrible consequences. One of the things that happens when the church starts believing sex is the most important thing, what does that do to people who are single where they start believing that the most important thing has been denied to them by God? It's only when sexuality is understood in a proper and limited context that it's not all of who you are, that chastity and singleness and obeying the biblical standard can make sense. So this is an area that is so important for us as Christians to begin to understand, that God is the author of sex. He's the one who invented it, that sex and marriage like fire in a fireplace is a beautiful and comforting thing. But sex outside of marriage is like a fire that's raging through a building and not contained to the fireplace where it destroys everything that is in his path. So you can imagine this talk uh, caused quite a reaction from the listeners. Um, the BBC was a little nervous about it. And as soon as the talk happened, everyone was talking about it. Um, without the permission of Lewis or the BBC, the Daily Mirror, one of the leading English newspapers, printed the talk in its entirety um, on the front page with the following headline, this was a very frank talk, which we think everyone should read. So, there are a couple of important implications here. First, the culture is still pressing on this issue in exactly the way Lewis describes. Humans are merely animals and should follow their instincts in any way they choose. Christians must counter this with a biblical understanding of what it means to be human, to be created by God. And there's some great material about this in The Abolition of Man and in the fictional version of that, That Hideous Strength, the last book of the Space Trilogy, where Lewis talks about what happens when sex is separated from the idea of procreation and becomes entirely a matter of pleasure. And you see this also in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Um, it is frightening to see how so much of that is coming true right in front of our eyes. The second thing that is so important to note is that Lewis holds the line on exactly what scripture teaches. He doesn't apologize for it. He says, honestly, it's gonna be the most unpopular of the Christian virtues and that either marriage between a man and a woman with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. And then again, look at the furor that Pope Francis's recent announcement caused. So there's so much to think about here. Um, we are out of time. So let's close uh, by saying together this part from the last um, section of Mere Christianity, um, which is especially resonant with this chapter. So I invite you to say this with me. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us as your people, the church, to begin to understand a biblical understanding of how you have made us male and female. Lord, we pray that you would help us to regain our understanding that we are made in your image and that you would help us to regain the understanding that sexuality is only a part of who we are, that you have made us for so much more than that and that our chief identity and chief joy is in belonging to and serving you. Father, we pray in the midst of all of the disorder um, around this topic in our culture that you would give us wisdom and courage and winsomeness to engage without judging others, 
but to try to help them see that you have created a way for flourishing and for joy when we live within the confines of your word. Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.